Yeah, this is my life. I'm done trying to convince people I'm real. Welcome to the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast, part of the Rambling Runner podcast network, where we take a look at some of the training and preparation that eight of America's best marathoners do to prepare for the Olympic Trials in Atlanta in February 2020. And with that in mind, we actually have a slight departure in this episode, and we're going to do this a little bit more in this coming fall, is talking to people in the running community, either runners or other individuals who have... um a big part to play or an interesting part to play in the Olympic trials. And one of those people is our guest today, Lindsay Krause. So Lindsay is an editor, producer, and runner at the New York Times and runner and writer at the New York Times. But she is a wonderful runner, and I'll talk about that in a second. But she was uh, a, a key figure and really led the charge in a lot of ways with some of the articles that came out this past spring talking about uh, kind of equity within professional sports, especially on the women's running side in regards to professional contracts and maternity leave and a lot of other topics as well. And I could not wait to get Lindsay on this podcast, if for no other reason than just to talk to her, because she really has such a fascinating story in her own right, as well as the stories that she has been a part of through her work at the New York Times. So we talk a lot about that. We also talk, of course, she's a native Rhode Islander, so we had to dive into that. In addition, and lastly, she's a very talented runner as well who has dreams of qualifying for the Olympic trials. So not only is she making a dent, uh, a huge dent, I should say, in the running community with her work as a journalist, but she's also a really talented runner who wants to be there in Atlanta with a lot of the other people that we've covered in this show. So... Let's get right to it with my conversation with Lindsay Krause. Hello, Lindsay, and welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'll tell you what, um, it, you know, I've been reading your stuff you know, for the better part of a year now, even I guess probably before that, uh, but just knowing you by name, um, you, you, obviously what your, your work over the past, you know, the past spring really touched a lot of people's lives um, in, in the sports world, specifically also within the running community for a lot of reasons. And I can't wait to touch on a lot of that. But I think the most important thing I want to touch on first is you're a fellow Rhode Islander. I mean, this is great. <laughs> this is great news for the show. Absolutely. It uh, brings great joy to me that that's as exciting to you as it is to me. I'm always telling people in New York how much um, Howard Island is the greatest state. And um, it sounds like you you agree. So I'm very into it. Wholeheartedly. 100%. In fact, I told someone the other day that you were coming on the show. And she was a, a former college running coach and ran in college and said, hey, did you know Lindsay is a, is a Rhode Islander? And she was equally, if not more so, enthusiastic than I was at this development uh, and really put your work into a whole nother stratosphere for her. Um, I really cannot tell. Like, it, it's impossible for me to overstate just how excited that makes me. Um, and everyone that I know here in New York will be will know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, again, before we dive into the, maybe... The, Maybe the more critical and widespread things that you've done. Where, where exactly did you grow up in Rhode Island? <laughs> I was hoping you'd ask, and I can't wait to tell you. Um, uh, so I'm from, obviously, you know, in, in Rhode Island, there are a million names for the exact same place. So um, it, Wakefield is the technical place, but I went to South Kingston High School, um, or Narragansett is what a lot of people know, but Southern Rhode Island as opposed to Northern or Eastern <laughs> Rhode Island in the vast state. 
but it is. Yes, exactly. It's, it's important to put directions in there, directionals, because it is so big. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. As long as we're not identifying the place by like where something used to be that closed, which is sort of the standard Rhode Island thing to do. <laughs> that's that's the most Rhode Island thing you could possibly do unless you're giving those sorts of directions while holding a Dell's lemonade. Very, very good point. Or um, a nice coffee. Or a nice coffee, yes. You're either consuming one of those two liquids at all times. Um, I don't know. It, Dell's might not be a liquid. Depends how long you've had it in your hand. I guess, technically yeah, speaking. So, you know, I'm actually, I'm, so I'm a native Rhode Islander as well. Basically, except for my four years of college, I've lived here the whole time. I was, I would do, you know, I grew up in Barrington and now my wife and I and our family live on the kind of the eastern end of Coventry, which again, the, mo the most Rhode Island thing I can say is where I live because I live at the junction of Coventry, West Warwick, Cranston, and Situate. So I can go on a three-mile run and go through four different towns, which is another like peak Rhode Island moment. Absolutely. Yeah. I know for me, I could run through like villages, I guess, um, or or counties, but uh, but certainly not the towns like that. So that's very that's a very good Rhode Island cred. Right. I think I think all right, the last Rhode Island story, I think you'll appreciate this because because of where you grew up. Is that there was we could just always spend the whole podcast doing this, and I'm sure everyone would like it. It as much as we do. <laughs> <laughs> is there was a, there was an exit sign? I remember this vividly. Um, where it was like, it was I think it was it was um either on Route One or it was right near 95, where it was the exit was for basically it was for 95 South, and the exit said New York or Wyoming. And like, if you're not from Rhode Island, you have no idea that Wyoming is a village. And when I was younger, I didn't know that either. So I just thought it was like the person who made the sign just decided to speak in generalities. Like, if you take this, you'll be going in a western, westerly direction. Yeah. Wyoming is probably one of my favorite Rhode Island signs or villages as a, um, like, short of, I don't know, like... Pesquamskit Rock or like places like that with names that are um, the only Rhode Islanders can can pronounce. Right. And I can't even say in a westerly direction because there actually is a town called Westerly. So even that yeah. would be confusing. Very aptly named. So let's dive into it because you and your work made quite a splash in the spring. I know you've been on a lot of shows talking about this, but let's just talk about you personally before we talk about you know some of the topics and issues that you addressed. There, these articles went far and wide and not only were they well publicized but you you personally got a lot of um, notoriety um, for writing these articles so what was it like for you personally handling that influx of attention um, when the subjects of your articles like Alison Felix, Kara Goucher, Lisa Matanio were, were so um, universally connected with? Sure I mean Personally, the story had a lot of significance to me. Um, I'd been following the story of, you know, it's, uh, watching those women, like we're all kind of the same age. We're all runners. Like I'm a fairly serious amateur runner myself. And so obviously, you know, consider these women to be my peers, almost like the varsity to my JV or something. But, you know, we're all on the same team more or less, which I think in a marathon and sort of in a um, like that, that is the cool thing about running is that it is all a continuum and these women are just faster than me, but I still connect with them quite a bit. And so, um, and again, we're all kind of the same age. And so, um, I'd noticed that 
well, not noticed. I'd watched a bunch of my um, friends, a lot of whom were amazing runners in college and have continued to be amazing amateur runners afterwards. In some case, you know, varying degrees of, um, you know, elite, sub-elite, et cetera. Um, but a lot of them would have kids and I would watch them do that. And I, I just noticed that a lot of professionals at the same time were starting to do that as well. I mean, not a lot, but some of them. Um, obviously, Alicia Montano did so very conspicuously a number of years ago. Kara Goucher obviously did so. Um, and I noticed that um, obviously, runners from East Africa have been doing this for a really long time. And there was a, a, I think it was maybe 2014 that I noticed that like maybe two thirds of the elite field, um, at least for the women, had children. Um, and that to me was really market. And so I wrote a story um, for the sports section about that at the time. I was I was in my probably like mid 20s or something. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't fully thinking about that for myself yet, but was sort of thinking about it. And um I think when I interviewed a lot of those women back then, it was more like a look at how these women are making it work. Like it was a very positive story. And there is a really inspiring message around um, balancing um, sort of the realities of motherhood with a successful athletic career. And I think there is the message that you can do that that's kind of worth telling that I found really interesting. And I think a lot of my peers found really interesting at the time. Um, however, at, at, when I did do that reporting with a lot of those pros, you know, some people would would whisper to me um, that, you know, that wasn't the whole story, that um, they weren't necessarily, while they were kind of outwardly praised by both their sponsors and the running community, privately, they were struggling. And, um, and that kind of stuck with me the whole time that I watched more and more women do this and kind of make decisions around, you know, her family life or her work life balance. Um, balancing it with a professional running career. And so, you know, as I watched certain advertisements um, publicly praising um, women that have had children, I kind of remembered back to the whispering that I'd heard and connected with Alicia and asked her, like, I know that this has been a source of frustration for you. Like, would you want to go public? Um, and if you would want to go public, like, how could we make this into something where people would really pay attention and um, where it would have an impact? And um, but the first thing was, you know, Alicia's story at that point wasn't as recent as um, it's one thing to say something about something that happened historically, but figuring out what was going on now with people and their contracts, um, especially because all of those rules are protected by really powerful NDAs, um, required a lot of digging. And so um, I didn't even know that Allison Felix was pregnant when I started working on the story, because as it turned out, she was hiding her pregnancy, you know, as she as she said in um, in her op-ed that she wound up doing for us. Um, and then when I found out that she effectively one of the most decorated track athletes in history, um, male or female, um, had had a baby. And I knew I had to get in touch with her, even though I thought that her treatment would probably kill my whole story. I figured she had to be getting everything she wanted um, from a sponsor. And so, but you know, you don't want any surprises and you, you do want to be telling the whole truth. Um, and so I just kind of got in touch with her and her her people and asked kind of what the deal was. And they told me that even for her, it wasn't an easy, an easy path. And that's when I knew that we really had something and that we really needed to start a conversation around this. Um, and so I was just really, and obviously Kara the whole time had kind of, Kara and her agent, Shanna, um, they'd been helping me out with it, but understandably maybe didn't want to kind of have the whole story on their shoulders. Uh, and, and Phoebe also gave some really 
um, just terrific quotes and just some really interesting context um, to the whole story. And I think together they wound up being such a chorus that I was I was so pleased to kind of get everyone on board. And my biggest fear was that no one would care and no one would notice. And, you know, perhaps these women, when they were breaking sensitive legal information and really breaking pretty powerful non-disclosure agreements against a really powerful company, I was I was worried for them. And all I could really tell them was, that if you do get sued, um, we will make that news. But I couldn't guarantee the Times doesn't protect people legally, so I couldn't um, I couldn't guarantee them anything more than kind of continuing to tell the story as it may unfold. So I was really relieved that the public did care and they really did come to see the whole story here. Um, and ultimately, that them speaking up was able to really change things. Right, and I would assume that in order to really tell the story as well as you did, you really would need a course of people, not only because of, you know, they confirm each other's stories, but it's so hard to have somebody go out on a limb with these non-disclosure agreements looming over their head if they don't have a lot of backup to then kind of like bear the brunt of, you know, a weight that could land on them. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Alicia was really brave and kind of being the first person to really, you know, I, I started working with her initially. And then I realized that the extent to which we were going into this, like it would be potentially dismissible with one person. Um, and so that was why I was really relieved that the other women were finally comfortable and brave enough um, coming forward and kind of telling their, telling their stories to a public audience, which I think ultimately does seem like it's it's helped them get their truth out there, which is what we're trying to do. Um, but yeah, definitely, I, I was very relieved that so many women wanted to speak up about their stories. Frankly, I was shocked about how many women did have really difficult stories to tell um, that had all kind of been secret before. Um, and in particular, I was really astonished that after these stories came out, so many other women who understandably had hesitations about um, talking with me about this. We were able to have really frank conversations uh, about this. And um, it was just, it was really powerful to see how many women did want to kind of speak up to, to make a change for not only for themselves, but for future, future generations to come. Now, just from a journalistic point of view, what's it like trying to get somebody to go from you know, working with you on kind of deep background to then, you know, having them be a named source in an article, which can be so much more powerful. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, frankly, it's about trust. Um, at the times we take confidentiality extremely seriously. Allison Felix was never, ever, ever going to be named in that story until she decided she and her team, um, her, her brother is her agent, uh, until they decided that it was the right decision for her. Um, and that is, again, because we do take that really seriously, like that's inviolable, inviolable for us um, at the times. I think that does help build trust. I think it also helps that I am a woman and I really do care about this kind of stuff. I'm also an athlete and care about it from that perspective too. Um, and I also, I don't have an agenda. Um, there's no advocacy agenda in what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to get the story out there. And um, I think when, if you are an athlete and you look at it that way, um, hopefully that is, you know, I, I was speaking with people, not only you know, when I did that first story back in, I think, 2014. But for this particular story, we, these were conversations that were unfolding over the course of a year. So it's not like I just called them up and everyone was like, oh, yeah, I've been waiting for someone to call me about this. It was like 
a really long conversation where at first I'm just trying to get the sense of the landscape and see if I'm onto something. And then um, over over a period of time, it's like, well, you know, this is going to potentially be a big story. It potentially might be a really big story in your industry. Do you want to be a part of steering that story or do you want to kind of be in the background? And I think um, the whole time there was no pressure on anyone to participate. It was more like we tried to frame it as giving them the opportunity to speak up if they wanted to. And um, I think not pressuring someone into doing that, like if no one wanted to speak up, we just wouldn't have done the story and that would have been fine. Um, but I think we kind of look at ourselves as as a platform where when people do want to speak up, the service that we're doing for you is making sure that we can either help you through a concept or through how you're actually phrasing your words um, to make, or even where we're placing it on the, on the times um, we were able to get this a lot of um, attention. We invested a lot of resources in this story because we did think it was important at the times. So we were able to kind of guarantee that if they did want to speak up, that we could make sure that people would listen. And I think that really did help get them to contribute. And in terms of telling this story, what was it like for you to think about the potential, you know, different segments of the audience, right? You have people like say, like, say, say you weren't writing the story, say you were just consuming it and it was written by someone else, Jen Miller or, you know, name, name a dozen other people who could have, you know, would, would love to work on something like this. Say you have, you know, you were just consuming it or I'm, I'm consuming it. How do you set up the story, which really takes such a deep dive for different potential audiences? Like you have like the fans versus like lay people who are just kind of into athletics, but maybe not, you know, maybe they have heard of Allison Felix, but don't really know some of the other characters versus people who just pick up the times and maybe don't even read the sports section very much, but, but find this potentially interesting. How do you storytell in a way that kind of can, you know, make it relevant and insightful for all three different categories. And maybe there's even more categories than the ones I mentioned. Absolutely. And that was one of the most, frankly, one of the most fun um, parts of working on this and one of the most kind of rewarding and validating parts of this. Um, we did this out of the opinion section at the New York Times. I'm a producer. My 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 full-time job is that I'm, I, I do do a lot of sports reporting here, but my full-time job actually is that I'm a producer um, in, in an editor in the um, video section of our opinion department. And this was the first time that I was really able to use my, well, first of all, I have an editor here, um, a new a new manager um, named Adam Ellick, who uh, really, really cared about this topic. And I think um, kind of believed in me and really invested in me. And without the support of the whole department behind me, we never would have been able to make this work because it was really, we had an amazing editor, James Jensen, um, an amazing, I have an amazing colleague who's a great editor, Andrew Blackwell. Um, and I was able to get kind of all of, and obviously we we brought in a terrific um uh, director Max Cantor, and um, through all of their creative energy, we were able to do two different things. One was obviously the the overall reporting of the project, um, which I really took on, and I was able to write a really kind of spare, um, very information packed article that was um, ex- like almost purely journalistic with no opinion, which was kind of unusual for the opinion department, just kind of laying the facts bare so that if you were reading it and needed to be situated and kind of know who you were talking about um, or who I was talking about, you could just read that article. Um, But the bigger thing that we were able to do was because we are an opinion video, we were able to kind of tell the story and almost harness the, the same emotional quotient of the 
Nike ads, um, particularly the one with Serena that ran right before the Oscars um, that I really loved and, you know, really affected me. Like, I want to believe that all of that stuff is true. We were able to use the power of video journalism um, and kind of cast Alicia in that video and script it for her um, so that she could kind of, we were almost telling a story through opinion video, which was kind of a new form of journalism. And that was a really exciting thing to do. We were both breaking information to a viewer, um, but also kind of getting them excited and introducing them to a story the same way that a cool ad would do. Um, And I don't think anyone here had really done that before. And that's why it was such an exciting kind of like cross team collaboration. And I think that's why it was able to affect so many different people, you know, from sort of the Time's Up audience to sort of a a women's issue type person to um, obviously someone that knows the industry really well. It was kind of hitting on all different areas. And and I think for that reason, it got a lot of media pickup in its own right, not only for its creative approach, but also for obviously the journalism and the argument that we were helping people put forward. Right. And I think the other part, too, is that it's an issue that is extremely important and touches on a lot of key factors um, within this industry, especially for individual athletes as opposed to team athletes. Um, But also because there is no it seems like there's no potential like obvious solution that everyone like every one company should do. Right. It seems like there's a lot of ways of doing these contracts, depending on the size of a company and things like that, where so many answers to this problem can be, you know, can be, um, I'm trying to figure out the best way of phrasing it. Like say Mm -hmm. for a smaller company, like Wazelle could approach it or can approach it very differently. Like for example, like a company like Nike, just because from a resource perspective and reach perspective that it also provided a lot of follow-up in terms of like how best to handle the situation in the short term and long term. Yeah, sure. I mean, that was the other kind of cool thing that we were able to do and that I was really excited happened from this is that our job was to break this information, to get the voices out there and to make sure that people paid attention. Um, we weren't trying to solve the problem we were, or say how the problem should be solved. We were trying to highlight this problem and then leave it to the people that could solve it to solve it. Um, And I think Alicia has been amazing at um, continuing to advocate for what she thinks. Um, Obviously, Lauren Fleshman, for example, um, has put forward a lot of solutions in a really eloquent way. Um, A lot of women have kind of put forward their own thoughts. And um, obviously, agents have also been really out care goucher, obviously. Um, A lot of agents have had had solutions. And I, I think we weren't trying to get the the granular solutions out there. We were more just trying to highlight the problem. Um, and so we were really pleased that, um, but I think what we were trying to say also was that we were trying to kind of pull away the veil of secrecy around this so that it wasn't just like we can publicly applaud Serena for her um, ability to balance work and family and that she would have sponsor support, um, or at least that's what was publicly claimed. Um, And that whatever applies to her should just apply to everyone that it's like individual women should not be forced to kind of scramble against each other for scraps and figure out like what they can get. This should just be kind of put forward to them as a policy and policies are what protect women. And I think the other thing that was cool about this was that in the, in this situation, these athletes, what they're dealing with is are issues that women are dealing with all around, particularly the U S but also all around the world. And so we were trying to position these 
female athletes, these Olympians who kind of had this pedestal as people that were able to actually potentially make change for women and people everywhere um, and position them as more influential than just, you know, really fast runners, which I think is actually really good for the sport. I want to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor, Inside Tracker. Listen, when it comes to diet and nutrition, it seems like there are a million voices in the wilderness all just screaming out. It's hard to understand what to think about nearly any kind of food. And that's why personalized nutrition can be so helpful and valuable. And the key to doing that is getting your blood work done, seeing where you are on a biomarker scale, and you can optimize exactly what your body needs. And that's exactly what Inside Tracker does. They track up to 43 different biomarkers. They've optimized zones specifically designed for you. And also, they have science-backed recommendations for different ways where you can improve different markers and your levels. So give Inside Tracker a try. It's such a valuable resource. Listen, all the top athletes in the world, they get their blood work done and they have professionals taking a look at it to make sure that they're on the right path. Shouldn't you be able to do the same thing? So use code RAMBLINGRUNNER to save 10% on Inside Tracker today. Yeah, and I think that we're at a time where, you know, these individuals in particular have such a platform that an art, you know, the series of stories and articles and media that was produced, you know, can land in such a heavy way with the, with the potential audience. You know, if you if you'd done these say 25, 30 years ago, I feel like the impact might have been lessened just because of the especially like from the popularity perspective of just women's running was at a very different place than it is now. So just, you know, especially for someone like you who is an avid runner, and I can't wait to talk about your own running journey and, you know, trying to qualify for the Olympic trials and all that, like just from your perspective, how has just the, the outlook on women's professional running changed in the recent past and how has that affected the way that you look at you know presenting stories like this that is obviously so tied to it absolutely I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question because that to me has been what's it has been the most exciting part of all of this I really think with distance running right now especially in America American women are so good and just so kind of popular and they're and you know from the elite level on downward everyone is better than before. And I think that's so exciting. And I think in distance running, it's actually a really cool opportunity to potentially highlight a sport where women are not adjacent to men. This is like a women-driven sport right now, um, which isn't to say that the men are bad. The men are also terrific. But there are a lot of sports where men are terrific and women are terrific and we just focus on the men more. And then I think we, in those sports where men are terrific, we kind of value those sports a little bit more. And I think this is an opportunity to kind of let women lead the way um, in a sport and almost like have women start boosting distance running um, visibility in the public eye a little bit more. I think a lot of distance runners, you know, people grumble a lot that the sport doesn't get a lot of attention. And this was kind of a cool way of showing that, you know, if we focus on women, maybe we'll, maybe in turn, women will lead the way and people will start focusing on the sport of track and field or distance running a little bit more. Um, I have a lot of ideas about how to potentially make that happen just because I do think the sport is fascinating. I think a lot of the women that I follow are really interesting 
coaching for reasons um, way beyond uh, just running or just their athleticism. Um, I think that a lot of female distance runners are actually really great thought leaders and um, that almost society is just kind of waiting to hear more from them. And I'm really eager to kind of be a part of telling that story and making this almost like trying to see if if we try to make this in the public eye a, a women first sport, if that it might actually help the sport. Um, again, not doing that in any sort of way that's at a disadvantage to men, but I, I think men would actually, if, if you improve the sport overall, it will be bringing men along as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because it's not a zero sum game. Yeah. I mean, you, you can just keep expanding the pie. Yeah. There's no question about that. And I think this, I mean, what you see in running is similar to what we've seen in tennis as well, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you look at it from just an American perspective. And I think, like you mentioned, there is such the demand for unique and interesting perspectives and thoughtful perspectives um, from professional athletes far and away exceeds the supply. Yep. Right. There, you see a lot of athletes who are, you know, creating content and, you know, putting a lot of, frankly, putting a lot of money into it, mm -hmm. um, but not necessarily making genuine content with like their actual thoughts and feelings. Um, probably spending more time on just the production value <laughs> more than anything else. Um, and I feel like, you know, and I'm sure there are more examples than just women's high level running. Um, but I feel like when you see there's, there's certainly a number of elite women marathoners and distance runners who are really going out of their way to explore social media and other, other content um, vehicles in a way that I feel like really captures people's attention, can bring, can basically bring fans along. So say someone's like a one out of 10, like a three, it brings them to like a six. And maybe someone who's a seven gets them to a 10 because it really engages with the whole person. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it really, for me, it's like looking at some of these women, I think the, the obvious ones are, you know, Steph Bruce, I think is, is a very obvious one uh, for a lot of people. Then Kara Goucher and Lauren Fleshman have done it as well. But obviously they're not exactly in the prime of their careers right now. They're kind of like, you know, they're, they're in a different stage of their life. But it's just so interesting to see women's runners explore this area of taking control of their own narrative in an interesting and genuine way. And when you see things like this or when you evaluate it as a professional communicator, who are the people that you think are doing it, you know, at a really high level? Yeah, I mean, I think I think all the women that you just named are are doing excellently at it. And I think actually what you're talking about is a really interesting distinction between just sort of trends that I've seen in kind of communication style. I mean, to speak in total generalities, but communication differences um, in styles between genders. And um, a lot of people say I, I wrote an article maybe like two years ago or something. Um, I had this observation that in the Boston Marathon, uh, that that kind of bloodbath during that terrible weather when a million people dropped out that um women dropped out at lesser rates than men in that race and the only other time in the past decade that women finished at higher rates than men was when it was really really hot and so it was kind of saying like women almost have this like superpower that we're not really paying attention to um around endurance and you know i only had a few days to write it and i was writing it after work so i was uh, you know kind of rushing it but it was really really interesting to go into not only the physical reasons why and the psychological reasons why women might be good at endurance but actually the social reasons why and as i started looking at that i started thinking about myself a lot as well um and a lot of people say that social media is something that you should avoid, um, that it leads to making you feel bad about yourself. It makes you compare yourself to other people in unfavorable, in unfavorable ways. And I almost wonder if female athletes, like 
um, to backtrack in the course of that research, I think I was talking to Adam Grant, so, um, the social scientist, and he was telling me that women actually use social media in really different ways than men. Like men are less inclined to, um, I mean, this is hard to kind of encapsulate what he was saying, but men are less inclined to use it like socially. Um, like even just the other day in the times we had an article about how men will post like almost like stark images of like strength, um, often that don't involve people. Um, and women will post pictures of people, um, and kind of, be a little bit more social with it. And I've really noticed for myself, like I trained for a marathon last year and I was training almost by myself just because I have a crazy work schedule. Um, and it actually, I didn't feel like I was training by myself because I was, um, not only posting a little bit about my own workouts, but I was really reading a lot about what other women were doing. Like they were posting to Strava, they were posting to Instagram, they were posting, little missives about like what they were thinking. And it's all kind of the same stuff. Like we're all kind of posting, I hope I can do this. This is hard. I'm trying to work hard. Um, but people are trying to be as authentic as possible about it. I mean, you see like Sarah Hall doing that and she's at the top of the field, but you also see a lot of these sort of more um, sub elite women doing it. You see women at the, at the very amateur levels doing this. And I think it connects all of us. And for me, it makes me feel like I have a team. Um, and of course I do have a team in New York, um, a real team, but it makes me feel like I have this conceptual team where even if I'm doing a workout by myself, I think like, Oh, I, this person did this this morning. So I should be trying harder too. It makes me feel better about myself. It motivates me. It doesn't make me feel bad. Um, and so I just wonder if that's another source of strength for a lot of women out there is almost like using these tools to get the positive reinforcement um, that they're looking for that helps them keep going and almost like to know that people are watching. And I wonder if women are more motivated by that overall um, from like a really positive, almost like team oriented perspective. It almost reminds me of when I was in high school with a cross country team and like, you don't know who's looking at you from behind or from the sidelines, but you kind of like feel their cheers. Um, and when you're in the backwoods, you kind of like, no one's around and you're in this like kind of dark place. You kind of, you imagine people cheering you on. And I feel like Instagram is almost like Instagram and Strava and those they're silly platforms, but there's almost like, there's a, a nuance there where you can use them in really positive ways to kind of cheer yourself on. Yeah, it can really create a self-affirming cycle that goes way beyond even these platforms. And, yeah. and, and a lot of, you know, a good example of this is just the OTQ process for for women, right? You have this this drive for 245. Um, and I think the high point of this was last year at the California International Marathon. And this was categorized, I think Tempo Journal did a really good job of chronicling this, as did other, other platforms. But really like this strong push for women who were really looking to become Olympic trials qualifiers and then a race seeing this and capitalizing on it. And again, it was like, it was kind of like a chicken and egg scenario, but, and then you, you had all of these volunteers. Like I remember interviewing two people who just got under 245, one including Haley Sutter, who literally fell on the yeah. line at 245, zero, zero, mm -hmm. telling me like I'm 300 yards from the line and there's a cadre of volunteers, not fans, people who are actually working the marathon saying, you're almost there, like hyper cognizant of the time and the stakes and everything involved. And it really created this scenario where it's like you see this huge boom in the you know sub elite high level amateur runners who are trying to get this, you know, 
you know, to get this Olympic trials qualifier, which is such an insane level, but yet now happening at such an increased rate, like when you see that happening, you know, even within your own training, what is that like to witness this huge boom to get this goal as someone who, again, is kind of in that same stratosphere as a runner? I find it incredibly motivational. I mean, it's the only reason why I even like figured I might want to try um, is that, you know, you get to know some of these women, um, you even run with some of them. Um, and a lot of them are actually a lot like me that we're just, um, you know, people that have always really liked running. Like some of us were like good in high school, but certainly not footlocker good um, or footlocker nationals good. Um, and we are often in our, you know, mid twenties to mid thirties, a lot like in their later twenties. So that's like a solid decade of running after college. And I know for me, like I ran in college on and off. I wasn't recruited. I never really had that pressure. I more enjoyed it from a social perspective. Um, but I also wasn't very good. Um, and I, I mean, I, I ran in the Ivy league. It's, it's a very competitive distance running league, but, um, for a little while, I think I, I mean, I had the injuries and everything else. It was a real like kind of low in my running career, I guess. Um, but I think I almost like was letting that define me a little bit. And then, you know, I moved to New York after college and it was like a whole other chance to kind of get into marathons with no pressure. And that was really fun. Um, and then I went through this whole other cycle of injury where, um, you know, just kept trying to get better and trying to get better. And in, in the meantime was like almost forcing it too much and just like never hit a starting line, um, for like five years, I think. And that was really depressing too. And then I gave up and in doing so, um, almost like, again, had no pressure and got faster than I'd ever been. And I think to varying degrees, a lot of the other women that are, you know, at, at, at whatever level, like sort of the three hour to 245 level. Um, obviously the, the ones, the ones that are faster than that, they're kind of in a whole other league, but the women that are kind of on that cusp, it's all just a question of like, how much do you want it? How much can you prioritize it? How hard can you try? And, and that's not going to guarantee that you're going to get faster, but it, um, I think it's all, all in the fun of trying, um, and like kind of continuing to redefine yourself as an athlete, and even when you're balancing that with like new versions of yourself, whether it's personal, um, like obviously a lot of the women, we get married, like we have kids, whatever. Um, we have jobs, we have like grad school, et cetera. Um, and with it, with it through all of us has been running and just like kind of trying to continue to get better. And I think at some point you're like, okay, I want to peak. And I think that's like kind of where I feel. I'm like, I'm not going to get faster forever and that's fine. You can continue to kind of redefine your peak. But the Olympic trials this year is a really exciting place to kind of see like, just how fast can I get? And I think it's really cool that the time is a 2.45 because that's hard, but it's not it's not as hard as the men, um, as the male equivalent time. And it's, it's a, the kind of time where if you really kind of double down, maybe you can hit it. And if you can't, hopefully you get faster than you've ever been before. And I, that's kind of how I'm looking at it is like, nothing happens if I don't hit this. Um, but if I do, how amazing is that? And also, isn't it so interesting to kind of try as I go? Yeah, and it seems like you've really upped your mileage in this training cycle as opposed to past training cycles. So what exactly are you doing differently to try to get to a level that you haven't reached before? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, it's it's a hard thing to think about, right? Because I definitely have learned from the past that, 
you don't want to do anything too drastic. And also like you kind of can't force it. Um, but there are two things that, especially cause I kind of train mostly by myself. I figure, um, I can change, um, partly cause they're, they're big mental things. The first is since I am kind of trying to peak physically this year, um, or at least like to get a peak, I figure I can get my mileage a little higher. I had the the sort of kink in my plan of what I had. I ran a 257 in CIM last year during that kind of exciting race when everyone was qualifying. I just wanted to go under three hours then. And when I hit a 257, I was like, well, I'm 12 minutes off. Obviously, that's a huge drop. Um, but first of all, that's the only other barrier that felt really exciting to try to go after. And, um, and second of all, I took six minutes off my PR. So technically I could have taken another six minutes off this spring and then another six minutes this fall and like, and gotten there. Of course it didn't go as planned. I got injured. Um, I just have like a kind of a chronic glute issue. Um, I think you get to a certain age and you just like have your injury and it's just always going to perk up at inconvenient times. And so that, that, that was an issue again. And I just wasn't able to actually run my spring marathon, unfortunately. Uh, but then I just, I was kind of jogging all spring and, you know, got really out of shape, but they say you got to listen to your body. And I think as you get older, you actually do do that. And also the great thing about not being a professional runner is that you've got other things going on. And so you might as well just like focus on those. Um, and no one actually, yeah, your, your spring was already pretty busy. Yeah, totally. I was like, I was working on that Nike. I was like doing like a million things. Um, and that's all cool. So I just like kind of focused on that. Um, probably was running like 40 miles a week or something and some weeks, nothing, whatever. It was fine. Um, and then, uh, I went on vacation, like just with my boyfriend. Um, we went to Europe and I don't run a lot when I'm with him. That's fine. Um, so that was kind of like, a break. And then I came back in the middle of July and I was like, all right, I'm just going to start doing this. And I had enough of a base that I started doing like 70 a week or so, like maybe in the sixties, the seventies. And then I'm dropping it down every three weeks, like by 10 miles. Um, and then raising it up again. So like this week I'm running 83 next week, 86, then I think like 88 and then I'll drop it down to 75. Um, and then a few weeks in the 90s, because, um, you know, just like watching peers on Strava, it seems like that's a reasonable mileage to try to get to um, when you're trying to run at that level. And then the other, so the first thing was just like, you know, I, I keep doing a, a kind of speed workout on Tuesdays that's short, and then like a longer tempo on Thursdays, um, with both with my team, Central Park Track Club, uh, as much as I can when I'm in town. And then the thing that I'm really changing that has taken the most kind of uh, I guess like mental toll is doing my long runs faster. I'm like a real baby about long runs and um, uh, have typically just kind of like jogged them and just looked at the distance as the achievement. And um, I'm really trying to add in those kind of marathon tempos that obviously most actual good runners do. And um, the hardest part, actual me, good runners, Lindsay Cross, how dare you? No, You're no, a no, really like, good runner. <laughs> again, you want like, my, my biggest challenge every training cycle and the real challenge for like the sad thing for me is that like, I can never run one mile under, um, seven minutes the first, like for like the first month that I start training. And that was also true this cycle. Um, and that's really hard for me because I'm 
trying to get down to, you know, the low sixes. Um, my marathon pace last year was, I think, like a 644. And I had a number of tempo runs in July where I was like, yeah, I can't even get under seven. Um, but then, I mean, this week I had my first kind of mile intervals thing and they were all in the 550s. So it's like you can get fit fast. Um, and that's a pretty fast workout for me. So it's like just how much lower can I bring that? Um, and then in particular, can I get, can I start getting to marathon pace in my distance tempos? And that's just what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And you mentioned a couple of times that you train alone, but you're also part of the Central Park Track Club. I actually had a chance to run, do a morning workout with them a couple of weeks ago oh, nice. uh, with Alana Coppelson, Jenny Don, and then a bunch of the guys. And um, boy, was that humbling. <laughs> that's a really oh, yeah. fast group. No, it's it's humiliating every time. Um, but it's a really supportive team. Um, but I always have to do like a month of tempos by myself before I can um before I can go with them. And even then, like I was telling my colleagues, I was like, okay, I'm going tonight. Like I'm gonna try not to drop out. And did I did anyway? But I did most of the workout, you know. Um, but yeah, they're they're really fast. All right. So regarding the, what we talked about earlier in terms of you know kind of continuing the momentum going that we saw you know last year with the OTQ process and more and more women really going hard for that what are things that the running community races and running related media platforms um, you know that really that they really you know go out of their way to not only storytell but trying to be a change agent as well within their industry can do to highlight this process and kind of capitalize on the momentum that's been building as opposed to letting it kind of languish after 2020. Um. Well, I think actually the real low hanging fruit right now is before the trials. Um, and just like I, I have a little plan of what I want to do here, um, around looking at those women, um, particularly the women. Cause I'm, I'm really excited about how, you know, in a lot of sports we hear about men and that's great, but I think like what the women are doing right now is really, really exciting, um, almost on historic levels. And, um, and I'm, I would, I will be happy to prove that in, um, in a bunch of reporting at the times. Um, but I think, um, I think it's almost like I have this fantasy of like creating like almost like a ticker, um, with like a bunch of data. And, and I think like the women that start qualifying now are going to be really interesting because all the women that are like really, really fast, um, like they've already qualified and that's great. But it's like the women that are this year, like me, like I'm obviously a super long shot. And if I'm trying, then there's obviously like probably like a few hundred other women that are also trying because they're all just as good as me and probably can cram it in even better than I can. Um, I'm certainly not the most efficient person in the world. Uh, and so I think it's like really looking at these women right now um, and kind of getting people who don't care about running, but do care about exciting things, um, getting them to pay attention to that. And so I have a few ideas about how I want to do that here. Um, but I think that's probably a place where the times can be a really, really good catalyst for, um, or a really good translator for getting kind of this like very almost like nerdy running stuff out in front of people that are, um, you know, not the obvious subjects for caring about this. And then afterwards, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of really interesting stories, but first you want to start a conversation and then how you keep it going is a whole other thing. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. And obviously keeping it going can prove to be much more difficult than starting it in part because 
it's just a longer time period. Yeah. And, you know, it's easy to get, it's easier to get people's attention as opposed to holding people's attention, no matter the endeavor. Absolutely. But I think, um, I think right now, like, most Americans haven't heard of the Olympic marathon trials and you could get them to be talking about it in the same way that they talk about the Boston marathon. And like, wow, it's crazy that you qualified for that. It's like every single woman that is qualified for the Olympic marathon trials should be a hometown hero. And I think right now that's, that's cause I mean, the Olympic marathon trials, every, like most runners know this, it's sort of the American Olympics. And so it's like, you're literally sending a delegate from your random town where a lot of us live. Um, and to like this, this national showdown of like all the best people in the world every four years. Um, I mean, sorry, in the country every four years. And, um, that's a cool opportunity and people should know about it more. But the first step is kind of, establishing just how cool this this thing is just how hard it is to do and then just how interesting and how hardworking, in a very you know american appealing way the people are that are um that are qualifying how just how they're doing that well said and if we do a little parade for you in wakefield rhode island oh i'll God. be there Lindsay Krause. oh no question you. about it be like my greatest dream <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. This was extremely informative and best of luck to you in your journey to OTQ. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a treat. Anytime I get to talk to a fellow Rhode Islander, shoot, I can dig that. But this conversation was so enjoyable. Thank you so much for being a part of it. And thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I really also appreciate you sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. We get a lot of the uh, the shares on Instagram, people DMing or sharing on their Insta stories. Thank you so much for doing that. It is so greatly appreciated. Thank you for everything you're doing. Keep up the running and have a wonderful day. This has been a production of the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. Thank you to my producer, David Margetti, from InPost Media. Also, thank you to Metapi for the music and his song, Evolution.